0: Well, good evening to everyone in Emmanuel Christian Church. Uh, For those streaming online, uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, The message uh, that I'd like to share, uh, the title of this message that I'd like to share is entitled Symptoms versus Root Problems. And the text for this message tonight comes from John chapter uh, 19, verses 10 through 12, which reads as follows Pilate therefore said to him, "'You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you?' Jesus answered him, you would, not, uh, "'You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin.' Upon this, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, "'If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend.' Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. Amen. Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you again for this moment this evening. Uh, And Lord, whatever message you have for us in this, I just pray that uh, you would make it clear in my words and in my thoughts, uh, Lord, that uh, it reaches who it needs to reach for this time and place, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, the title of this message is Symptoms Versus Root Problems. Uh, Anyone with eyes, ears, or half a mind about them today is aware of the many pressing issues uh, that pervade our social, economic, and political fabric. The nature of policing, uh, striking and seemingly uh, insurmountable economic inequality, the expression of one's sexual preferences and the freedoms around them, how a society should respond to global pandemics, uh, the continued pressure on the rights of free speech and free religion, Uh, Should I continue? I think these all sound pretty relevant for us today. All of these issues and more are constantly being reinforced to our society through contemporary media, both traditional and social, as problems that we must confront and stamp out entirely if we are to achieve a civil society worth living in. These are problems that must be handled soon, swiftly, and with significantly deep political and cultural shifts. My argument tonight will be that these so-called perplexing problems that we all face aren't really problems at all. They're really not, I'll say that again. These aren't problems um, that we face. Be they policing, inequality, sexual issues, so on and so forth, they're not problems. What these are are actually symptoms symptoms of the real underlying root problems that all humanity faces. Just like when we catch an influenza virus, or today even coronavirus, we are likely to show some symptoms, be it fatigue, fever, achiness, coughing, among others, that of course aren't the real issue. These symptoms we know are the reactions our body goes through while attempting to fight the real, underlying problem, the virus. So there are two questions I have for reflection about these issues that we will look at in turn. And after touching on these, uh, I appreciate your patience in advance. I promise we'll come back to John chapters 18 and 19 in a minute. Uh, But we'll look at these questions in turn. First, why do we keep finding uh, finding ourselves in these highly sensitive, problematic situations? In Malcolm Gladwell's Gladwell's 2019 book, Talking to Strangers, Gladwell examines why we are so inept at communicating with strangers and understanding the behaviors of people that we don't know. The two basic propositions that Gladwell fleshes out in his book is that when we're confronted by interactions with strangers or new or novel situations that are unfamiliar to us, we quote, default to truth or we rely on the assumption of transparency. Default to truth is a concept borrowed from psychology that states that our fundamental reaction, how we're hardwired to react uh, to any kind of new information is to believe it. Most of the time, the concept works. Friendships can't start without it, nor businesses can't function without it. The inside of the book, however, is the fact that the accuracy of ordinary people like you and me to detect deception in others is less than random chance. Let me explain what that, what that means. The science that, uh, that this comes from decades ago uh, was done in a classroom, and I know we have some teachers in our church that might appreciate this. So the scientists that did this experiment went into a classroom and had the graduate student who was assisting them act as the, the aide, and the students were to play a trivia game in teams and the grad student on the table outlines, you know, that has all the cue cards and all the answer sheets in front of them, and they explain the rules of the game to the students, Uh, and they do a question or two to get into the game, and then the grad student um, uh, makes believe that they've been called for something more important out of the room. So the grad student says, I'm sorry, just please stay where you are. I'll be back in a minute and we'll continue the game, and they leave the room. Now all of this is being recorded, and so they watch whether or not the students would wanna cheat and come up and look at the answer sheets before the grad student returns. So all this was being recorded. So the scientists would record these videos and then would show them to ordinary people like you and me. And after the game, the students were interviewed, so they see, you know, or the, the scientist knows who cheated and who didn't cheat, and then in the interview afterwards, they would ask the students, "How well did you do? You know, was the game very hard? And did you cheat? You know, did you and your partner get any you know extra assistance that the other students didn't get?" And they would respond, "No, we didn't cheat, or it was really hard, or whatever it was." And so the scientists would show the videos to ordinary people like you and me, and the task was to. Um, identify whether or not the student was telling the truth or were they lying. And when the students were telling the truth, um, we're pretty good at that. 80, 90% of the time, we can tell when someone's telling the truth. Unfortunately, that's not the case when deception is involved. We're basically the flip of a coin, 50-50 chance of identifying whether or not those students are cheating. It's hardwired into us, confronted with a new situation, novel situation, is just to believe what we hear and what we see and and that uh, is called default to truth. What about transparency? Transparency is the idea that people's behavior and demeanor, the way they represent themselves outside provides an authentic and reliable window into the way they feel uh, and believe on the inside. When we don't know someone or can't communicate with them or don't have the time to understand them properly, we believe that we can make some sense uh, of them through their behavior and their demeanor on the outside. So here are some examples of what the transparency assumption looks like. Uh, And I think some uh, members of our church will appreciate this because I think we have some fans in our church of the television show Friends, uh, probably. Uh, if you didn't see the show when it came out, the reruns are on you know, all the time that we can watch. And one of the interesting things that people have found out about the television show Friends is that uh, you really don't need to hear the dialogue of the show to understand what's going on. You can, in other words, you can, you can have the visual screen and the, the actors on television, but if you turn the volume off or you mute the volume and you just watch the characters on the screen, you can still follow the plot of the particular episode and know what's going on. And part of the reason for that was is because the writers of the show were so explicit in that the demeanor of the, each character expressed the archetype function, if they were happy, they always expressed happiness. Or if they were sad, they always expressed sadness. Or if they were anger, they always expressed those arch- archetypal frustrations or looks of anger and frustration. But that's really not how we behave. That's really not how we behave. And, if, and uh, you know, for those of us that are married, we know that Sometimes we can read our spouses, but oftentimes it takes time to understand that some things we're going to express and some things that we're not. So how does this get us into into trouble? There's a couple of examples that that Gladwell uses that illustrates how we get into trouble by assuming we can read someone's feelings and thoughts on the inside based on what's on the outside. Well, uh, some time ago, some, some folks will remember the case of Amanda Knox, and Amanda Knox was a college student around the time that that uh, that some of us were college students in here, and uh, uh, from Seattle, Washington, and she went on a study abroad trip to Italy, and she was not even there in Italy for a full semester when one of her uh, roommates from the UK, Meredith Kircher, uh, was murdered in their apartment building um, that she shared a, an apartment with, and. Um, and essentially what happened was was that the, the police and their interrogation and trying to figure out what was going on had, uh, had basically come to the conclusion that Amanda was one of the, the, the perpetrators of this and had committed the crime. And so um, spent uh, time in court, she was prosecuted, spent time in jail there and fought the court system in Italy and the remarkable thing was there was absolutely no uh, physical evidence whatsoever that tied Uh, Amanda Knox to the murder in any way, shape, or form. There was absolutely no connection whatsoever. Uh, But when the Italians saw Amanda Knox, this American uh, 19-year-old college student from Seattle, Washington, who had uh, different um, sort of expressions, different language, uh, different way of expressing herself, they did not know how to process that. And so they assumed that her lack of emotion, or imp- or lack of empathy, or uh, the just sort of general aloofness that she showed uh, wasn't because she was immature and could not really process what was going on, but there were signs of guilt, uh, which actually turned out to be contrary. Another famous example that, that Gladwell uses in the book from history um, is a gentleman named Neville Chamber- Chamberlain. Uh, Neville Chamberlain was a British prime minister right at the beginning of World War II, and uh, what history, you know, you don't get to be prime minister without doing some good things, but what history records Neville Chamberlain as being is someone who was too uh, sympathetic and was too willing to appease Adolf Hitler and and Hitler's rise in Germany. Uh, In fact, um, what he records in the book is that uh, on a, on a number of Cajun, occasions, even without the British people knowing, Neville Chamberlain would fly to Germany to meet with Hitler to try to negotiate him out of uh, his extreme stances and, and what he was doing to um, to invade other countries on in mainland in mainland Europe. And what uh, what Gladwell basically comes to the conclusion is that um, you really didn't need a whole lot of information about Adolf Hitler uh, to know that you should be concerned. But Hitler on the outside was telling Chamberlain uh, that he could still be negotiated with. He really wasn't gonna be that aggressive. He really wasn't sure what he wanted to do. Um, And Chamberlain took that transparency and thought that, okay, if this is really the case, then we can still negotiate. But with Hitler, all negotiation was off. So default to truth and the assumption of transparency. So that's just laying the foundation. And and so now let's look at the contemporary examples, and then I'll come back to John 18 and and 19. So the second question of the two questions for reflection, why do today's proposed solutions to the problems that I tried to outline just a minute ago, uh, those proposed solutions that our forefathers um, would say would be impractical, infeasible, or unsustainable, why do those proposals seem to be getting much more traction as preferred responses to the uh, symptoms around us? So let me give you some examples of what I mean by this. Most recently, the city of Minneapolis, in response to the tragic death of George Floyd, uh, approved a new policy that will defund the police department in hopes of developing a new law enforcement approach One that would be assumed to be less intrusive, less aggressive, and with less flexibility and even greater oversight than the current uh, police structure. The same is occurring in other major cities around the country. One of my closest collaborators today is a faculty member at the University of Minnesota whose university campus is in Minneapolis. I recently asked her how she would describe the overall morale and feelings amongst the community there. She didn't want to describe too much detail for me, but she did say that in regards to the tragedy and all of the fallout and responses as a result, the best words she could use to describe the feelings amongst the community and the people would be disappointed. Disappointed that it happened and disappointed in how it's been handled. Another example, albeit with much less traction, but with growing social sentiment is social reparations. These would provide payments to descendants of formerly enslaved peoples. I recently heard an award-winning journalist um, that has written about the history of slavery in the United States say on a nationally broadcast NPR program that reparations are necessary because of the accumulated wealth disparity between primarily white rich and disadvantaged black, or, or disadvantaged poor uh, black. Her justification for this was because of the centuries of financial wealth that white people have accrued and passed down generation to generation that gives them, an, gives them an unfair advantage and privilege over black people who do not have the same opportunity or have not had the same opportunity for wealth generation and transfer or status in society. How about immigration? Immigration. Although it's not in the press as often as it used to be, this is another social hot button issue. There are two extremes now in regards to immigration reform and enforcement. One is based on the assumption that any one random undocumented immigrant poses the same risk factor as the undocumented immigrant with a criminal record and illicit intentions and the same economic threat as transfer for jobs offshore. If you hold to that assumption, you're more in the build the wall type of extreme crowd. The other is based on the assumption that any one random undocumented immigrant assimilates the American ideals and creates the same economic outcomes of a legal immigrant past or present. And if you're in that extreme crowd, then you're for the open unrestricted border approach. So these are all forms or or responses uh, that take on the form of consequentialist approach to justice and this is really important and I'll highlight this in the community response to Jesus' trial in John chapter 18 and 19. What is a consequentialist approach to justice? Consequentialist theories or doctrines of justice hold that the morality of an action is to be judged solely by its consequences. In other words, it doesn't matter how you get from point A to point B, so long as you get to point B. Anything is fair game. Unfortunately, these approaches fail the same tests that I mentioned earlier, default to truth and transparency. So, assuming that we can detect evil intent in police officers compared to those with pure intentions is the same mistake we make when trying to detect cheating among students in their post-game interviews. Assuming that we can tell when a random, undocumented illegal immigrant poses the same risk or benefit to society as a criminal or entrepreneur is the same transparency mistake of judging the inside based on the outside. Like assuming that, uh, that we can know how wealthy or privileged someone is based on the color of their skin or how guilty or innocent somebody like Amanda Knox would be in a particular case. Let me use myself as an example. I'm a white male, Ph.D. educated, college professor. Does that mean I've been handed down to me a family fortune accrued over centuries that makes my path in life one of advantage and privilege? Of course not. My father never graduated college. My mother was a high school teacher. Both of my grandfathers were career long frontline technicians for Southwestern Bell Telephone Company. We have no inheritance to pass forward. My education was not paid for by an endowment, it was paid for by my future earnings that I make today based on what I take home and pay out in my student loan every month. My family name did not exempt me from the PhD exams. I personally had to study and make the grade. Why wouldn't redistributing my income to pay for reparations be any different than robbing Peter to pay Paul? Solving one injustice only creates another. This brings me to my final uh, point here. Why the consequentialist approach falls short of true justice. It doesn't deal with the root cause of the error infraction or injustice. It is symptom oriented, not root cause oriented. What is the root cause of any of these issues that I've tried to describe, both in terms of the societal issues and the way we process them using default to truth truth or transparency assumptions? The root cause is that every one of us is fallible, imperfect. In short, we're sinners who cannot fully comprehend the truth or at least recognize and appreciate the truth, unless God grants us that revelation. This is the conundrum that Pontius Pilate found himself in at Jesus' trial. This was for two reasons. First, Pilate, whether he knew it or not, was fighting against the human tendencies to default to truth and transparency. And fight he did, as we'll see in just a moment. The second reason for his conundrum was because Pilate was holding to a, to a retributive approach to justice, not a consequentialist one like the Jewish leaders. The retributive approach to justice says that when an injustice has occurred, such as when an offender breaks the law, justice requires that they, the offender, suffer in return and in some proportion to the offense. Our modern legal system is based around this retributive approach to justice. Summary then the consequentialist approach is more subjective and arbitrary. Uh, The retributive approach is more specific and measured. Now let us look back at John chapter 18 and 19 and by examining Pontius Pilate perhaps we can see what he got right and what he got wrong. So um, again Thank you for bearing with me as I build that foundation. Uh, I'm going to uh, read quite a bit from John chapter 18 and 19. And just to set the stage for this scripture reading, uh, John chapter 18 and 19 uh, begins in the garden, and uh, Jesus is, is taken prisoner. And uh, it, it basically follows the line of Jesus from being captured through his uh, trial uh, with Pontius Pilate and the the conflict with the Jewish leaders, all the way through to um, uh, carrying out the cross. Uh, intermixed in there is um, is Peter and the famous um, story of Peter and his denial of Christ. Uh, I'm going to skip over those and just follow the timeline of of uh, Christ and his um, and his arrest. Uh, which starts um, at 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the Jews uh, that, what is, that, w- that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Verse 19, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing secretly. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Annas then sent uh, him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. uh, Down to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the praetorium. It was early. They themselves did not enter the praetorium, so they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have handed him over. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. This was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to show by what death he was to die. Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight, that I might not be handed over to the Jews." But my kingship is not from this world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. For everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after saying this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no fault in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Will you have me release for you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard these words, he was the more afraid. He entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Upon this, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, and in Hebrew, Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him over to be crucified. So read the scripture. Hopefully you see as I've tried to see in in studying this, is that Pilate desperately fights default for truth and transparency. And if you've ever been between a rock and a hard place, uh, I think you might be able to sympathize a little bit with what Pontius Pilate must have been feeling that particular day. Time and again, he goes back to gauge what the chief priests and officers are actually asking. And time and again, he pushes back. I find no fault in him. When he was tired of arguing with them, he he started to set Jesus free. And that only set the mob off even more. And when he asked Jesus, basically looking for a way out, or I'll come back to that in a minute. um, But Pilate knew that somebody had to pay. Barabbas' time had come and he was going to have to pay. But the mounting pressure of the crowd, the mob, so to speak, had Pilate on his heels. Uh, so how did this occur? Look at what the, what did the, what did the chief priests say in the morning? In the morning, they said, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And in the afternoon, they said, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out the son of God. They painted Pilate into a corner by persuading him that death was deserved, uh, but by the law, they themselves couldn't be the executioner. It didn't matter how they got to point B so long as they got to point B. They could make up any law to justify getting to that point that they wanted to. So they had painted Pilate into this corner between a rock and a hard place. Pilate still fought. Pilate asked Jesus per perhaps even pleading with him for a way out. Where are you from? Are you not talking to me? Do you know that I have the power to crucify or release you? Jesus uh, almost goes so far as to absolve Pilate. And when I think about this, this is one of the, the insights that I guess maybe I had never appreciated before, that he almost goes so far as to absolve Pilate. You would have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. I mean, when you think about that, I'm trying to help you. I have the power to release you right now. Work with me so I can get you out of here. You don't have any power unless it was given to you from me. Uh, it's amazing when you really think about that. And the second part of Christ's statement, the, the final response that he, that he gives to Pilate, uh, he says, therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater Sin. How they got to this point, that's the greater sin. Not what you're doing, but what what has led me to this point is the greater sin. Beyond this point, Jesus is taken out of the court to meet his fate. So, there are at least three lessons or reminders that at least I think I take away from looking at the trial of Jesus in this way. First, and I've tried to hit on right now, getting the result that we want doesn't justify the means we use to get there. Both the means and the ends have to be right, not in a subjective way, but in an objective way. Second, given all the challenging issues being shoved in our faces in society right now, if we don't hold fast to the first lesson that that we have to stick to objective means and ends, not just the ends. If we don't hold fast to that first lesson, um, then we really do risk losing those freedoms that facilitate the expression of an active church in the 21st century. Now, this is the really kind of counterintuitive part of this thing because there's a lot of things going on right now. I mentioned immigration, reparations, um, how we're responding to the virus, um, any number of things, the recent Supreme Court rulings on uh, sexual discrimination, so on and so forth. And I've really had a change of mind, because if you had asked me some years ago, I probably would have been a hardliner in those particular issues. But I really have kind of had a change of mind and heart about those things, because um, we're human beings with free will. And if we didn't have that free will, if God forced us to love him that uh, superseded our free will, that's not a love that God accepts. So he gives us that free will. Well, who am I then, therefore, to dictate how someone else is to lead their lives? Does it mean that I have to agree with it? Don't mistake me for what I'm saying right now. Does it mean that I agree with Homosexual marriage, or uh, you know, things about inequality, or what it doesn't mean. I agree with those things, but I can't dictate to that person how they're going to live their life. If I do dictate how I get how they are to live their life, in other words, I'm going to skip part A to get to part B, and I'm going to jump. I'm going to skip that step. Well, this is really important, I think, because if we try to skip that step and dictate that in society. We lose the credibility and the foundation to share the gospel with them because they don't have now that free will incentive to hear the message and come to Christ on their own, like you or I did. I think that's a pretty important step that we should not forget about. And then finally, and I appreciate your patience hanging with me uh, throughout this message, is finally somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay. And even in the darkest moment of the New Testament text, God in his infinite wisdom and divine maneuvering the direction of history provides for us yet another striking gospel message even in Pilate's court. Because Pontius Pilate knew, just as our legal system knows today, that when a crime has been committed, when an error has been made, when an infraction has been, uh, been uh, set up, Somebody has to pay, and in proportion to that mistake or in proportion to that crime, um, he knew that. Our legal system knows that. Spiritually, inside of us, we also, deep down, whether we want to admit it or not, we also know that. And so what do we see in Pilate's court that particular evening at the end of Jesus' trial? Well, Pilate had had enough, and um, the custom was that someone would be released at Passover uh, as a a symbol of the gospel message that was to come. But little did they know that the gospel message was right in front of them. Well, Barabbas the robber, the sinner, um, can you imagine the look on his face being in the prison cell and the cuffs being unbuckled and the chains being unshackled, thinking that he was about to go to his death and walking through Pilate's courtroom, looking across the room to the defendant's chair and seeing who's who's there but Jesus Christ in the defendant's chair about to get the lethal injection. Even in the darkest point of the entire New Testament of Jesus facing his trial, we are still confronted or we are constantly confronted with the gospel-saving message that here's the person who pays the price where we all fall short, both Pontius Pilate and even, just as even today. So let us not forget um, those means and ends that must be just and when they're not just, that it's not in a policy or a rule or a dictator or, uh, or any of us instilling or, or mandating to somebody what can and should be allowable and what could be achievable. Uh, That, my friends, is only through the power uh, that saves, and that's the power of Jesus Christ. So God bless you this evening. I hope uh, this wasn't too heady, but it gives you some food for thought to think about these issues that we all face. Uh, So let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I just thank you for giving me the clarity of mind and word to be able to share some thoughts with uh, manual Christian Church this evening. We pray that whatever uh, uh, truth or, or wisdom that's in this message, Lord, that you would just write it on our hearts, Lord, and continue to uh, manifest uh, whatever truth that is in here for us, Lord, that you would manifest it in us, in our, in our thinking, and in our actions, Lord. And we thank you again for that sacrifice that you made beginning at Pilate's Court, uh, for the sacrifice for us that we may know you and that others may come to know you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. God bless you this evening.